My name is Namwali Serpel, and my second novel is called The Furrows, an Elegy. Namwali Serpel has written a genre-blending book that explores grief. Cassandra Williams is 12, her little brother Wayne is 7. One day, when they're alone together, there's an accident and Wayne is lost forever. His body is never recovered. The missing boy cleaves the family with doubt. Their father leaves, starts another family elsewhere, but their mother can't give up hope and launches an organization dedicated to missing children. Through experimental fiction, Serpel's main character is able to relay in a clear and concise manner, not necessarily the events that occurred, but instead the emotion that emerged as a result of those events. I recently spoke with Namali Serpel about her novel, The Furrows, and all that went into it. I'm Beth Golay, this is Marginalia, and here's our conversation. I typically ask authors to describe their books to our listeners, but that doesn't seem like an easy thing to do with The Furrows. Is a broad overview even possible? I think so. I would say this is a novel that tries to enact the experience of grief and to explore the question of belonging. You know, I've seen a lot of blurbs and reviews and such begin with the first lines of your novel. And while I don't really want to do what everybody else does, these opening words are quite thought-provoking and a good place to start. They are, I don't want to tell you what happened. I want to tell you how it felt. So these words belong to our initial narrator, C, or Cassandra Williams, or she's not sure if it's Cassandra or Cassandra, but maybe you know. So anyway, her story is less about what happens and more about how it affects those left behind, isn't it? Yes. So the novel is experimental in a very classic modernist sense. So if you think about the works of Virginia Woolf or James Joyce or Proust, even in the American tradition, William Faulkner, the overall structure of the novel is itself an argument, or, and this is to quote Toni Morrison about Faulkner's work, the structure is the argument. And part of what I'm trying to do with the structure of the novel is enact the rhythms of grief that you experience. So the aim of the experiment, which will feel like it's a kind of cognitive puzzle about what happened, is in fact geared toward trying to evoke how it felt. And how do you say it, Cassandra or Cassandra? <laughs> well, I have it as both because my experience of that name is that in white America, you would say Cassandra, and in Black America, you'd say Cassandra. And because C is mixed race and has a white parent and a Black parent, the ambiguity about how to pronounce her name is kind of endemic to her, her character. I think in my spirit, I think of her as Cassandra, but I also feel that the character herself continues to struggle with where she fits uh, within these different communities. And you just referred to her as C, which, you know, she's referred to as C quite a bit in the book. So we'll just do that for the rest of this interview. Sure. That sounds good. You know, you do tell how it happens in a way. I mean, C tells how it happens in a way. I mean, there were three stories about how her little brother Wayne disappeared. And while the details change, there's a repetitiveness in the theme of the story. C and Wayne were 12 and 7 years old. Something tragic happens. C thinks she sees Wayne die, but a body is never found. And I liked the way you described in an interview this repetitive storytelling as a narrative stutter. 
So how did you decide to tell the story this way? And also, if you feel like I'm spoiling anything, feel free to say we're not talking about that. No, that's there's enough twists and turns in the novel that I think spoilers don't don't pertain. The initial disappearance loss is a, a, a kind of nice word to cover the two possibilities of what has happened to Wayne that I describe in the novel was based on a dream that I had when I was in graduate school. And I think it was very, very likely about my nephew, Cheza, who was about that age, of about seven at the time, maybe a bit younger. And when I wrote that particular version of the loss, I was very much drawn to the the kind of panic and also the kind of love that I felt in waking up from that dream. And the question of what happens after a dream is over lingered for me and made me also feel some resonance with how I had experienced dreams of my late sister, where I would wake up and remember again that she had passed and I would feel this grief kind of crash over me again. So when I turned back to write the novel, I I had this dream in the spring of 2008, and I wrote that first chapter. I came back to it the following summer when I was on leave from teaching, and I was living in New York, which is also where my late sister had spent a lot of time uh, when she was a college student at NYU. And I had a dream about her in the apartment that I was subletting. And when I woke up from that dream, is when I realized that I would need this iterative structure, these repetitions of loss to try to convey that feeling. And the idea of having, as you say, certain things that remain the same across those losses, their ages, um, their, their names, the fact that they are alone together, And that this is not unusual, that this isn't a a strange day for them, but that a 12-year-old taking care of her seven-year-old brother isn't so strange, you know, back in the the 90s when it's set. And that there would be certain pieces of language that I would repeat across these losses was something that emerged in the writing process and is one of the reasons why very late in the process of writing the novel, I decided to call it an elegy because it seemed to me that those repetitions had more to do with, uh, or they were more akin to the metered structure of a poem or the refrains that we hear in an elegiac song than they were necessarily the kinds of repetitions we usually come to in a narrative. I read in an interview that you said something very similar to your comment about your sister that, quote, in a strange way, a person you love doesn't just die once. They die every time you realize that they're dead. And, you know, I've heard it said that a person dies like three times, once, you know, when they initially die, once when they are buried, and finally when they are remembered by somebody living for the last time. And so your mm. your book takes that old saying to a whole new level, doesn't it? Yeah, no, I didn't know that saying. That's an interesting, that's an interesting saying. I think it has behind it the same impulse as the stages of grief um, that are presented in certain psychological treatises about grief. I think there's an aspiration to them that someday grief may be over, may be resolved. It's hard for me to imagine that there would ever be the last time a person remembered somebody. And so I think for me, the the sense that grief is something that has an unaccountable rhythm and one that does not 
subscribe to our desire to heal, our desire to close, to achieve closure, as we call it, um, is something I really wanted to, to put pressure on in the novel. Your writing seems to possess a, a keen sense of observation about it. I loved some of your descriptions, like how summery foods, cotton candy, soda, beer, and popcorn all seem to have an essential ingredient of air, or that the Williams family had, you know, a bad math aspect to it, like, quote, you can shift the numbers, but there's always something missing, something to carry. Can you talk to me about your writing process, or maybe this is more a question about your editing process? I mean, how many drafts do you go through to end up with something so precise? Oh, that's interesting. I mean, when I look at the documents that, of course, are, you know, they say final, 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 you know, <laughs> right. version. Um, but when I, when I actually count out the number of drafts of the prose, I think we probably, in the first set of drafts and revisions, which took place between 2008 and 2014. So I think I had the first full draft around 2011. There's probably seven or eight full complete drafts. But then I put that novel in a drawer for some time. And it's, it's funny because I actually think that something is happening when a novel's in a proverbial drawer that is a kind of revision. There are new versions that are sort of happening in your mind as you, as you move away from the novel and achieve a kind of distance from it. And so when I went back to it in 2019, I think there were, I'd say, three yeah, three or four more revisions of the book. But what's interesting, I was just thinking about this the other day, is that when I pulled it out in 2019, I undid some of the earlier revisions because in those early days or those early years of revising the novel, I was responding, it was, it was the first novel I finished. So I wrote The Old Drift and ended up publishing that first, but this was the first complete novel. And I was responding to many, many different readers, friends, uh, my literary agent, people who were working at the agency. And so I think a lot of my revisions were in response to those readers. They were efforts to help them understand what I was trying to do. But one particular desire on their part was to have more of Cassandra, to have more of C. And as you know, the novel switches point of view halfway through the book. And so one of the major differences between uh, you know, early versions and later versions was how much of Cassandra we got in that second half of the book. And I ended up going back to the first instincts that I had about the novel when I returned to it. So I think revision is this process of, of going forward, two steps forward, two steps back. And in some ways, it's that's fitting for a novel like this, which is very much about how morning feels that way. And I, I describe the way that you feel like you're swimming ahead, you're getting there, you're, you're moving forward, and then you get cast right back. <laughs> and a lot of these revisions, as I just suggested, were much more at a larger scale. They were about the structure of the book, the point of view of the book. So that was one revision that happened late. It went from third person to first person. And um, I think the drawing in of, of uh, a new character, uh, Will, in the second half of the book, who had a very minor role in the first versions of the book. He was a doppelganger, but he didn't have a voice and he was Dominican and he wasn't African-American. So those were sort of big changes. But what you were 
asking about was at the sentence level. And for me, those revisions happen very much in the editing process once we have the full object. And then it's a sort of matter of refinement, deleting certain images or moving them to other places. Sometimes, and, and very often it's about rhythm at the level of the sentence because I read the entire novel out loud when I'm going through copy edits and then again when I'm going through proofreading. I want to follow up on a couple of things that you said because you mentioned that you changed from third person to first person and that was, I read yes. in an interview that it was after you had read as Elena Ferrante that for the first time it, yes. it, it inspired you to change it. To me that seemed like a really large decision and I, I was wondering, mm. you know, what made you make that decision and once you made it did you ever regret it <laughs> oh no I think I didn't actually and what's interesting is that I held on to the third person for as long as I did I have often felt that I tend toward the third person for various reasons one I have a very possessive relationship to style and it feels to me that you lose the kinds of observations that a writer might make. You lose the kind of language that a writer might use if you have a character who's not a poet. <laughs> and that's how I felt for quite some time. And I also wanted to have the kind of command over my characters that someone like Toni Morrison has. Very few of her novels are entirely in the first person. She has first person sections, but the novels themselves are often in the third person. And that kind of mastery is something I very much aspire to. The Old Drift, my first novel, my first published novel, has, of course, this first-person plural series of interjections from the perspective of a chorus of mosquitoes. Because they were unworldly in some sense, I felt like I could do anything I wanted with their voice. But to submit to a character's, not just their mind, because you can be very close to a character when you're in the third person, you can see the world through their eyes, but to submit entirely to their style, to their inconsistencies, to their unreliability is quite daunting, I think. You have to relinquish some control as a writer. So I think that was why it took me some time to come to the first person for this book. But that first sentence, or those first two sentences, I don't want to tell you what happened, I want to tell you how it felt, are so important to what I wanted for the novel, that building unreliability into the telling became a really helpful tool to achieve that. Because if I were in the third person telling different versions of how this young woman lost her brother, then we're in the realm of speculative fiction, parallel universes, you know, forking paths, and we're no longer in what can easily be attributed to her own internal fracturing of her psychology, her own dream logic, the way that she's trying to work through uh, these questions. So I think reading Ferrante's Neapolitan trilogy, but then also reading her novel Days of Abandonment, which is just so beautifully maps the psyche of the narrator onto the prose really inspired me. I thought this will be a very interesting challenge, especially because I'm going to then have the task of rendering that same accuracy with two very different other characters, uh, young black men who are very different 
class positions than C, but also very different class positions from each other. And so I sort of decided I was up to the challenge of that and willing to submit my language to the quality of their minds because actually they might be able to access ways of seeing the world that have their own kind of beauty. Well, I don't think I need to ask my second follow-up because it was going to be about when the book shifted perspective and it, it shifted tone. Did you write the two sections separately and join them together or did you always have the second section in mind when you were writing the first? Yes. So the earliest versions of the novel had the same exact pivot halfway through from Cassandra's story of her family and how they're grappling with the loss of this child to the perspective of this man that she meets, whose name is that of her younger brother, Wayne, and who she feels like she recognizes. This is, of course, complicated and rendered rather dark, if not a little taboo or perverse in that she's sexually attracted to him. She's drawn to him erotically. I was always going to switch uh, to his perspective and the earliest versions of the novel from the first draft had that switch. And the second half of the novel was always going to be a different genre than the first half, which is more of a domestic drama or family story told in a modernist style, sort of very strongly influenced by To the Lighthouse, for example, by Virginia Woolf. The second half was noir. It was influenced by, I was reading James Kane at the time, Jim Thompson, and I read a lot of Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett in graduate school. And part of the reason that I chose to work in that genre, apart from my love of genre generally, which is evident in my first novel, which ranges across at least four or five different genres, was that I wanted to have something really plotted. The first half is constantly subverting our expectations of developing a plot arc. And so I wanted something that felt plotty, partly also to keep myself in check, um, <laughs> maybe also to give the reader some, some respite from all this uh, subversion of, of expectation. And so that second half was very, um, I think the early versions were very, were a little bit hammy. There was a sort of uh, Ocean's Eleven type of feel to them because it was set in the contemporary moment, but was still alluding to all these older noir texts and films that I was also uh, really enjoying watching in the San Francisco Bay Area. In the revision, I decided to make it a little bit less noir in the kind of classic sense from the 20s on and sort of an even earlier uh, genre, which is the kind of horror stories and crime fiction stories developed by Edgar Allan Poe. So Will's story from prison is mapped very closely to the first doppelganger story written in English, which is Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson. And I wanted to capture something a little edgier. The perspective of noir is sometimes from the criminal, but often is from the detective. And I wanted to go back to the earlier versions of crime fiction that were more squarely focused on the criminal's perspective. So that was my intent in revising that second half genre-wise. But I always had the sense that the two sides were gonna be different genres. To go to your question of whether I wrote them at the same time, I believe that I generally don't write in order, but I believe that I wrote the first half and then the turn into the second half, basically chronologically. 
I might have jumped around a little bit in, in each of those parts, but I did write the first half first and the second half second. But there was, I, I, I knew that I was going to switch into his perspective by the end of that summer that I was describing when I was uh, writing in New York. I, I had flown back to California and I remember very specifically when I woke up one morning in my Berkeley apartment and thought, oh, that's who gets to speak next. <laughs> okay, so this book touches, I mean, this book is, to me, is about grief, but it also touches on race. And I liked how you described C's tango with race, you know, which was the closest mm-hmm. approximation she had found to being mixed race. And I'm quoting, you know, not not knowing which foot was in place, which amputated, or maybe it was that one foot was nailed down and the other was wildly kicking, running. So talk to me about how you approached race in this book. Yeah, so um, Cassandra was always mixed race and in, in my conception of the book. And she has a white mother and a black father. And one of the interests that I have as a mixed race person myself is thinking about the differences between different kinds of mixed race. So in The Old Drift, I have different versions of what in Zambia we call colored people. And some of them have you know, a parent of each race, but some of them have two mixed race parents themselves. So it's a sort of multi-generational community there. Uh, here, I was interested in thinking about and riffing on engaging with the tradition of mixed race literature in the Americas, which starts all the way back in the 19th century because there was so much kind of rampant assault and rape of black female slaves. And so their children would, you know, be sometimes considered mulatto or quadroons and so on and so forth. The Octoroon is the title of a text from the 19th century. And then we have this uh, modernist tradition of novels like The Autobiography of an Ex-Colored Man by James Weldon Johnson and Nella Larson's Passing, which was made into a film just last year. We also have Danzy Senna's Caucasia and um, other novels that have emerged, I think, in the more recent years that are trying to understand the different nuances of what it means to be a mixed heritage or or to be mixed race in in America. So I wanted to explore this. And specifically in C's case, I wanted to think about what it would mean for her to lose contact with one side of her parentage when her Black father moves away from the family and starts a, a new family altogether because it felt to me very much like her desire for connection with the Black community informs the grief that she's feeling over losing her brother. She doesn't have literally, you know, her sibling to bounce off ideas or feelings about being mixed race. And the encounters that she has as a college student with other students who are immigrants, uh, other students who are who are Black, don't give her the sense of recognition that she needs. In the second half of the book, you know, we have two young men who are orphans, and so their relationship to their parentage is already going to be slightly different. But also, they grow up in a Black context. They grow up in Baltimore, and their relationship to each other is very much locked or trapped by the structures of racism that dominate that city in particular. And so there I was interested 
again, in thinking about what is internal to race. Uh, so in C's case, the, the kind of internal schisms of being mixed race, with them, it's more the internal schism of class and how that divides different Black people from each other. Can you talk to me about the title, The Furrows? Because there are so many meanings involved with that. Yeah. So the title initially came from an image that sort of just came out of me when I was trying to describe the waves in the first version of loss that I depict. I refer to the great grooves in the water, the furrows, as those that sort of rise up on either side of Wayne and swallow him up. So this idea of, of something that is grooved um, or grooving into the water was very much on my mind. I think in my mind, I had a line from Thomas Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49, and the notion of slipping across time, which is grooved like a vinyl record. The line is about Edipa Moss and it says, trembling, unburrowed, she slipped sideways, screeching back across grooves of years. And I was interested in that both as a temporal description, but also as a way of describing the psychic feeling of being beside oneself with grief. But then I was also interested in how that's a way of describing also our sense that the world of the dead is right, right next door to our world and that you just slip across a couple of lanes and you are in this other path. As you write, other things come to you. And so someone mentioned to me Sir Thomas Gray's elegy written in a country churchyard. And because I gave the novel the subtitle, An Elegy, I would look back at that poem and realize that there are furrows in that poem as well. There the furrows are referring to those in the earth of this graveyard where the, the poor are buried, the working class are buried. And there had already been in the novel an attempt to connect the furrows in the water with the furrows in the land through the figure of Mo or uh, Muhammad for short, who is a mentor to one of the male characters in the second half of the book. So that also brought up all these resonances. And then I came across this wonderful line from Edouard Glissant, who not all of his works have been translated, but he is describing the water of the Atlantic. He describes the middle passage as the furrow through the sea. And in another text, he describes it as not all absence nor half presence, but so fill that being is to them as a furrow of earth. And he's describing their, the, you know, the particular relation to blackness. It just seemed like it kept cropping up everywhere. When I taught Toni Morrison's Paradise last semester, there's a debate in the community uh, in the town of Ruby between the older generation and the younger generation about an inscription on an old oven. It seems to refer to God. And it says, the older generation think it says, beware the furrow of his brow. And the younger generation thinks it says, be the furrow of his brow. And I was, I loved that, um, that I sort of was incidentally tapping something from Toni Morrison in this novel as well, since this book is so indebted to her. That was Namwale Serpel, author of the book, The Furrows, which was published by Hogarth Press. Thanks for joining us for Marginalia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. 
Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita. Our engineers are Mark Statzer and Torin Anderson. Our editor is Luann Stevens. Our producer is Haley Krausen. And our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia. And for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay.